How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. And so throughout the book, I knew that I was going to end with this sort of, and again, this is not a spoiler, (laughs) I was going to end not with my own story, but with this sort of mythical woman who's going, striking out on her own and, and how she embodies all the women in the book, all the women in my life, all the women that I hope to meet in, in the future who have made that choice as well. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Kaya Oakes. She's a journalist and author of several books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. She teaches writing at UC Berkeley, is a contributing writer for America Magazine, and speaks on topics related to religion, writing, and feminism from coast to coast and abroad. Her work has received multiple awards, with her essays and journalism appearing in The Guardian, Slate, Foreign Policy, The Washington Post, and the On Being website. She was born and raised in Oakland, California, where she still lives. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. Kaya Oaks, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's really nice to be here with you, David. So I've asked, as a way of beginning our conversation, for you to read a short passage from your book, The Defiant Middle. Sure. After abandoning religion in my teens, when my father died and life felt gray and flat and devoid of meaning, I'd rediscovered Catholicism in my late 30s, yet another period when I did not feel like my life mattered. This cycle is familiar to people with major depressive disorder. Depression appears on the horizon in small ways, small personal things that pile up a few bad days at work, the news cycle, the pounds that pile on without you noticing them because your body is just a sack to be dragged around. 
And then all of a sudden, there's a day when the full mass of depression presses down, an anvil of emotional pain, and the cycle begins again. Social withdrawal, a self-hatred so deeply rooted it can't be extricated from who you've become, days that drag and nights that never end. What religion offered was less a message of personal salvation and more a message that none of us, no matter how sick, angry, filthy, or unwanted, is truly alone. What faith gave me was a reminder that the ordinary world, even the world of depression, is still charged with grace. Gerard Manley Hopkins the tubercular, closeted gay Victorian Jesuit who also suffered from depression himself, wrote that the world is charged with the grandeur of God, full of the dearest freshness, deep down things. That's what I found in Catholicism, as ill of a fit as it often was. It handed me an explanation for awe, a liturgical framework, a love for the poor, a link to my family history, and a community of saints living and dead, but it could not take away my depression. Anxiety, for those who've unfortunately experienced it, is more of a familiar, unwanted daily companion. It's always there, needling and prodding the mind to tumble into what endless what-if scenarios, all of them ending in catastrophe. People who live with overlapping anxiety and depression often feel guilty. So guilty, so repentant for things we've failed to do, so sinful, so unworthy. We are, in other words, picture-perfect Catholics. And that's my guest, Kaya Oaks, reading from her recent book, The Defiant Middle. Well, some listeners may think that's kind of a harsh place to start, but I'm really grateful for your writing that and for your reading that for us now. And I say that in part as a person who my, myself, I have struggled with exactly the kind of emotional situations that you're talking about. I have a history of both anxiety and depression. And so it was really helpful to me to see you frame that in both a personal and a religious context. And I think that begins also to open up for us many of the themes that are going to be present in our conversation about your book, The Defiant Middle. This is a book about liminal spaces. It's about moving in between well-defined identities, well-defined characteristics, and it's about those kind of gray areas in between. And the kind of emotions, the kind of mental states that you're talking about in anxiety and depression, those are kind of... at least in my experience, kind of gray areas. And so I kind of want to start the conversation here and say, tell us a little bit about the in-between spaces, not just the emotional ones, but all the ones that you're considering here in your book, The Defiant Middle. What drew you to want to write about that? Well, the timing of the book was really interesting because I signed the contract to, I began discussing it in the summer of 2019 with my editor, I signed the contract in February of 2020. You can see where this conversation is going next, which is that I went into the pandemic with a job to write this book, but the pandemic was itself a liminal space. And particularly at the beginning, I think we were all in a state of suspension between understanding that something very bad was happening and not knowing how that was going to directly impact us or whether it was going to end. And so that opened me up to this. I originally had thought, well, I'm going to write a book about 
women. And originally I had written a piece for On Being, which is the website for the radio show and podcast about medieval women in the Christian tradition and how they embodied this idea of liminality, but particularly in a really interesting spiritual way, because they were mystics and they were caught in between heaven and earth a lot of the time. But the pandemic really it turned me from somebody who was interested in Julian of Norwich, who's somebody who wasn't able to, she made a choice not to leave her cell, but she was living in a cell that was attached to the side of a church in medieval England. So she chooses to live there. But then the plague comes and over and over again, she nobody can leave their homes. And so I became Julian of Norwich in some ways, although obviously not as brilliant as she is. But that led me into these questions about how I wrote this book while we were all collectively dealing with anxiety and depression and stuck between the way the world used to be and the way it will be in the future, which we still don't know. And particularly as a woman, how was I experiencing that at 50 and uh, turned 50 when I started writing the book? And how was I experiencing that not being teaching to a screen of black squares on Zoom with students who wouldn't turn their cameras on because they were depressed and anxious? And so, yeah, it just opened up this whole conversation about how most of us in one way or another have lived our lives between expectations and reality. And that's where the book begins. Let me take just a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Kaya Oaks about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. Well, this was one impression that I got from your book, The Defiant Middle, and that is you talk about the way in which these various women through history sort of inhabited this middle space and you talk about how we've ourselves moved in, into this kind of middle space with the pandemic. But one thing that rang out to me again and again is the middle space is oftentimes a place where women are pushed into, shoved into by patriarchy, by power. But there's also a real sense that I got that many women have learned to utilize this middle space as a place of power, that there's a kind of way that failing to be accountable in a black or white either or choice actually allows for more room to maneuver. Now, these are my words, not yours. So as I'm drawing that impression from your book, how am I in terms of understanding what you were writing? Or would you say this in a very different way? No, I think you're, I think you're um, picking up something that I... I have a background in music, and so I often think of the top note in a chord, and then there's the middle note, and then there's the bottom note. And writing is much like that. There's the top theme, which is women, but then there's the middle theme, which is the expectations, and then there's the bottom theme, which is defiance and how... When people are confined by social structures that are out of their control, whether that's race or gender, poverty, capitalism... That can be very crushing uh, to the spirit, but can also lead to revolution, for lack of a better word. And so women have learned to be revolutionary when they couldn't read and write. They learned to be revolutionary in their homes and how they brought up their children when they didn't, when they weren't able to work. When they were able to be educated, they learned to be revolutionary up to the point that their educations had to stop. <laughs> 
I'm aware every day of the fact that I teach at a university and that my uh, grandmother, my father's mother, didn't finish high school, for example. And so I think you're right. I think that in that chord of different ideas that the book represents, that idea of how do we use middle spaces and how do women in particular get really creative with that? Well, and one thing that I wanted to ask you about as well as a way of kind of setting the stage for the listeners is about the structure of the book, because it's not like this book has one grand thesis that it's arguing. Rather, it presents a series of themes and then meditates upon those themes, utilizing the biographies and the histories of various women who have kind of inhabited these middle spaces. I'd really like to hear a little bit about how you chose this structure of the book, because I was very taken with it, because as I was reading through it, I realized that it's incredibly readable what you've put on the page, but also I was getting such sort of depth of information, but in a way that almost didn't feel like I was receiving the information in kind of an ordered way, but rather in more kind of a thematic or almost a, a kind of, you mentioned a moment ago, a kind of musical way. So I'd love to hear more about the how you came to the structure of the book. Sure. So, and thanks for picking up on that. I, this is my first book. And so at some point in time, the idea of the narrative book that has a very neat beginning, middle and ending got really boring to me as a writer and it, it's not challenging. I do a lot of journalism as well. And you always have to have your nut graph, which is your who's who, what's what, your lead, your kind of heart where you get the reader's attention. And that kind of writing is great for getting information across. But when we're writing about ideas, it doesn't work as well. And I was sitting in my garage during lockdown and I had this contract for the book and I had sold it without an outline, which is very unusual. Most nonfiction books require an outline, but my publisher had enough trust in me that the idea was good enough to carry through and left it up to me how the structure was going to be. So during the first wave of COVID lockdowns in March of 2020, I was riding an exercise bike in my garage and it was very dark outside. I remember this. And I just picked up my phone and in my notes app, I wrote down, here are some ways that women are stuck between expectations and reality. And they are more, as you mentioned, thematic sections the narrative sections so it starts with age and aging and then it goes into body and gender identity and then at the end into to the mind right so i was trying to think in broader strokes about that idea of how do expectations form us and how do we push back against them and so for each of those ideas I picked a person. So for youth, I started with Joan of Arc because I've had a long relationship with her. Personally, I grew up kind of with her as a role model, but she's very problematic in some ways. And in other ways, she's been distorted by other people. So she was never really to de- able to define who she was for herself. And then I moved on to getting older and I thought about a lot of different women who dealt with issues with age and aging. And I thought at this time of year, I often think of Anna the Prophetess who appears 
at the presentation of Jesus. And she's this 80 something year old woman who lives in the temple, but she never gets to speak. It's just really frustrating. I'd love to hear what she had to say. Anyway, so yeah, so I just picked, I started with one or two women per chapter. And then when I began to unpack their stories, they would lead me to other women. And I also didn't want to just talk about religion because I'm a person who writes about religion, but I'm also have this background as an arts journalist. I teach at Berkeley and I live in a very secular world 99% of the time. So I, I use pop culture. I use literature like Shakespeare. I use music as a theme sometimes, visual art. So yeah, so it's it's more of a kind of weaving together of themes rather than a linear arc of a narrative structure. But I found that very liberating. Maybe I was defying the narrative structure. I don't know. (laughs) If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kaya Oaks. She's a journalist and author of several books. And today we're talking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Kaya Oaks. She's a journalist and author of several books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. She teaches writing at UC Berkeley and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. Today we're speaking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. Before we went to break, you were talking about the structure of the book, and one of the images that you used was a kind of weaving together of these various strands. I really like that, and I want to stick with that for just a moment, because one thing that readers and listeners should expect about your book is that there's an awful lot of you in this book, but it's not an autobiography, it's not a memoir. And what I really liked about that was how vulnerable and how available the information that you offered us was in the telling of the story, and yet it never felt like you were using this as something to kind of hook us in, but rather it was a way of of illustrating these themes and these connections that kind of resonate through the various women that you mentioned throughout the centuries. And so I want to ask you as well about 
the way in which you made the decision to put yourself and not put yourself in the book? How did you dance the line to say, well, this isn't memoir, this isn't autobiography or even biography, but I'm a character in the telling of this story? I'd love to hear about the thought process behind that. Sure. So one of the things that I often talk about with my students when I teach creative nonfiction and all writing, really, I teach research writing, I teach composition to first-year students, is the idea of voice and authenticity and how academic writing really has devalued that and taught us to write in this very bland kind of authoritative way. And by doing so, it's stripped away the fact that what led us to these topics in the first place was our own personal experiences and interests, right? So I was kind of fighting back against that. And then also I wrote a memoir 10, 12 years ago And I never want to do that again. I think everybody should be allowed one memoir per lifetime. (laughs) I'm sorry to people who've written seven or eight of them at this point in time. But at some point, that kind of intense navel gazing becomes really exhausting. And also, I think for women, there's this pressure to write about trauma and to perform your trauma in your writing that I was looking at with one eye and going, that's kind of scares me because I'm not ready to do that. But also, is that what we're going to be expected to do now to get a book deal? And so when I went into this book, I presented it as a combination of journalism, research writing, and some personal anecdotes. So part of the reason I I did appear in the book, I think I, I think walk on character in my own book rather than the central character. And the reason why I chose to do it that way is because it would be hypocritical and inauthentic of me not to be in a book about women's <laughs> expectations of life because I am a cis woman. I was born into a female body 50 years ago. I've inhabited that body. I've lived the experience of somebody who looks like a woman, talks like a woman, is perceived to be a woman. And I can't change that now. I can't go back in in a time machine. So it would be hypocritical and my voice would be very inauthentic if I did not bring my own experiences into it. And also it gave me the opportunity to write about some things that I think are still kind of taboo in our discussions of gender and the idea that you have to have certain sexual organs to be identified as a certain gender. And and that kind of idea is stuck with us. And as a person who lost my reproductive organs to disease and is what is still considered to be a woman, That's an idea that was very personal for me. So I used personal anecdotes when it felt hypocritical not to, but I didn't want to write just about myself. Well, and I want to move towards some of those taboo subjects that you talk about, but on the way to that, I want to linger here in this moment of character and identity, because you you talked about the way in which you made choices about how you would introduce yourself, your vulnerability, as a kind of walk-on character in your book, and one of the stark contrasts to that that you raise in your book, The Defiant Middle, is the narrative that we're often given 
of a woman writer by the name of Sylvia Plath and the way in which she is oftentimes re-narrated despite the facts that we know about her and about her abusive marriage and about some of the abuses and traumas that she suffered. She often gets re-narrated even by very progressive, very kind of socially, consciously positive women, riot girls, as you talk about. She gets re-narrated as a kind of person who was captive to her trauma. And I'm, I'm wondering about the contrast there, about how we think about and how we allow the stories of women to be rewritten in our culture and that process of rewriting. And I'm not even quite sure what the question is that I'm asking, but as I'm thinking about how you just described yourself as a character and the way that you very clearly show that Sylvia Plath is kind of rewritten as a character, I'd love to hear about kind of the friction that I'm sensing there, and maybe you're not, but if you are, I'd love to hear more about that. I was really fascinated by Plath as an undergraduate, like everybody else who studies English and went to a liberal arts college in the, in the 80s or 90s. She was really, I don't, the, I don't know how else to put this, but like she was kind of shoved down our throats as uh, if you want to grow up and be a writer, you have to reckon with the fact that look at what happened to Sylvia Plath. And as I write about in the book, that's actually very toxic because we weren't really talking about Plath as a person. We were talking about what she represented. And it reminds me of recently as this book has come out and I've begun to talk about it with people. One thing somebody asked me at the launch event was, what did you wish you wrote more about? And I said, virgin martyrs. And <laughs> nobody went, what? But in the Catholic tradition, there are martyrs who died for the faith and they're all men. And then there are martyrs who died to protect their sexual purity and they're all women. And I find that just so bizarre. It reminds me of the way we look at people with Plath because we have reduced Plath to her mental illness and the way she abandoned her children, quote unquote, by choosing to die by suicide. And we've lost her. I don't know anything about Sylvia Plath other than that, right? And so in the same way, I don't know anything about, I don't know, St. Cecilia or these many thousands of virgin martyr saints other than the fact that they were virgin martyrs. So I think for me personally, I don't want to be... Uh, a narcissist, that's my greatest fear. You can ask my therapist every week. They go, damn, I'm a narcissist. <laughs> and she says, no, 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 you're the opposite of whatever that is. But if I, if I only wrote about myself, that's one way to go where it's just complete self-obsession. And on the other hand, if I don't define my narrative, then there's a danger that somebody will do it for me, right? And that's something that we've seen over and over again throughout history. So I want to give room for people to read this book and do the same thing with women's stories that they grew up with and say, why were we taught this about this woman? And who was she really? And what did she really think? And what did she really believe? And how was she silenced and, and how did she lose her voice? Because we can, in some ways, give back to women who weren't able to speak a story that they couldn't tell. And so I had to be present in the story to make sure that somebody didn't come in and say, well, why didn't you show up here? <laughs> 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kaya Oakes. She's a journalist and author of several books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. A moment ago, you talked about reducing Plath to her mental illness, and what that made me think of is something that has been a theme both in your book and in this conversation, the tendency to want to reduce women to a certain set of organs or a certain set of behaviors or a certain set of appearances. And so this is the point in the conversation where I want to ask you, since you begin to engage that towards the end of your book, The Defiant Middle, and you really start to push back against it, when you use the word woman, how are you defining that word? What does the word woman encompass for you, Kaya Oaks? For me, woman is people who feel like women. So I'm not caught up in the idea of gender as biology. And the reason I say that is because, again, I myself am missing ovaries and uterus, which would be normally how you define a woman. A few years ago, a friend of mine passed away from breast cancer, so I watched her lose this very visual part of what other people used to define her a woman, but she still felt like a woman. I still feel like a woman. My friends are trans and gender non-conforming, non-binary. They, the pe- people who are trans women, they feel like a woman. They live as women. And so I don't see why they can't be included in this conversation. And I, I really want to push back against this idea that biology is what determines gender because it's so much more complicated that, and even science is beginning to understand that this is not a black and white thing, that gender does not always exist on a binary and there are intersex people and there are people, every woman's going to go, every woman who's a cis woman will go through menopause at some point. So does the fact that she can no longer reproduce mean she's not a woman? These are questions I think we haven't honestly wrestled with. What we've instead decided to do is we, but people who some people have decided to double down and punch down even more and say, I'm policing gender and I'm saying only the people who have X and Y chromosomes or these organs can get in while forgetting the fact that there are millions of people around the world who don't fit in one way or another into their biological gender. Well, and as we're interrogating this idea of gender essentialism or biological gender, I'm also aware that at the top of our conversation, you read a passage about returning to Catholicism. And I am also a Roman Catholic, a person who chose to be Roman Catholic. And one of the things that I have wrestled with is the fact that my church currently has a very solid line on gender essentialism. They very much believe in a kind of binary humanity. You're either one or the other. There's no flu it in between, and there's no passing across that barrier. And so I'd love to hear how you are thinking about your identity as a Catholic and the things that you just said about kind of taking a strong stand, as I do, against the very kind of, I'm going to say it, these are my words, not yours, the kind of bigoted view of the Catholic Church around ideas of gender. It's tied up in being a feminist in the church, and it's tied up in having friends who are queer Catholics, and it's tied up in 
growing up in the Bay Area around a very strong LGBTQ community. And it's just, it's such a long story. I, I, I can think back to being a kid and my babysitter was my sister's gay best friend from college. And I loved him because he would let me watch any video I wanted from the video store. But also he was just, he was a great example to me of, he was a Mexican-American and Catholic and very devout and never really seemed to have questions about his identity. It was just part of who he was. So his Catholicism was as intrinsically part of his identity as his gayness, as his maleness, as his being Mexican-American. And I think for a lot of us who have, in your case, chosen to join the church, or in my case, chosen to stay, it's part of it is that if we leave, it's going to be even harder for other people who feel that they're in the struggle with us. And so if I leave, I abandon my friends, I abandon the saints that I feel would be with me in the struggle, I abandon priests who I know who can't come out of the closet. I abandon so many people and, and just say, I'm going to go do something that's easier. You and I and other Catholics are often will hear, why don't you just become Episcopalian? And one can assume that we probably have tried that <laughs> and it didn't work for whatever reason. But for me, it's like the communion of saints is all of us. And so if I go and I, if I have to find a church that fits every preference that I have, that doesn't mean that it's the right church. It means that it's the easy church. And I would rather be where I am and be with people who are also struggling for the same things. And even if we don't see it in my lifetime, only God knows what's next. I, I really like that answer. And one of the reasons is because it, it, it helps me understand another level to your book, The Defiant Middle, because you're talking about your own presence in the church being an ally. But also, that's exactly what you're giving us in terms of the characters that we encounter here in your book. You're giving us examples of those who chose to stay where they were and to be who they were, sometimes at great personal cost. And I'm really struck by that parallel. But as I draw that parallel, I'm realizing that I may have gotten it wrong. So Am I hitting on something that you intended, or would you kind of phrase all of this in a different way or push in a different direction? No, all of that makes sense. Of course, like I'm going to hold up examples of people who are role models to me, because I, I hope that they can be role models to other people. And so my struggles are often to differentiate the church as institution from the church as people. Right. And so I think I wanted to show readers people and focus less on the institution other than to talk about where the institution falls short in its understandings of things like gender. But yeah, I think I wanted to bring more people into the conversation because as a journalist who often covers people who are on the margins of the institutional Catholic Church, whether that's immigrants or African-American Catholics or LGBTQ Catholics, like people who don't fit the normative idea, that I've always met those people as 
individuals rather than like groups. And so I wanted to tell stories of people. And yeah, they did tend to be people who similarly women and non-binary people in a few cases who similarly said, I'm just going to bloom where I'm planted rather than rip up my roots. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kaya Oakes. She's a journalist and author of several books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. She teaches writing at University of California, Berkeley, and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. And she speaks on topics related to religion, writing, and feminism from coast to coast and abroad. Her work has received multiple awards with her essays and journalism appearing in The Guardian, Slate, Foreign Policy, The Washington Post, and On Being. She was born and raised in Oakland, California, where she still lives. Today, we're talking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. We'll be back in a moment. Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on Animal Welfare Certified Bone-In Beef Short Ribs, Sustainable Wild-Caught Sockeye Salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie and ground lamb. Grab an olive boule bread from the bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21 plus. Please drink responsibly. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Kaya Oakes. She's a journalist and author of several books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. She teaches writing at University of California, Berkeley, and is a contributing writer for America Magazine, and she speaks on topics related to religion, writing, and feminism from coast to coast and abroad. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. One of the things that I really liked about your book, The Defiant Middle, is that even though I do not identify as a woman, I do identify as Gen X. And I don't quite know exactly when your birthday is, but I was born in 1971, and a lot of the things that you kind of are writing about in terms of touchstones and basic values, and that sense of invisibility sometimes, of kind of not making the cultural register in some ways, all of that really resonated with me when I was reading through your book. And so I want to ask about the kind of, I guess, the spirit of Gen X, because there is a sense, and you talked about this a little bit in the last segment, of not trusting institutions, but it's different from the ways that hippies didn't trust the institutions, the kind of purple people that you talk about there in the Bay Area. It's a different way of not trusting institutions than maybe some of the younger folks that are growing up now don't trust institutions. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you view the character of Gen X and its particularity. 
Well, I was also born in 1971, so we're the same age. And so when Bob Dole passed away yesterday or when the news broke yesterday that Bob Dole passed away, the first thing that came into my head was Viagra, right? And (laughs) because Bob Dole, as a failed presidential candidate, decided that a great career move was to do ads for Viagra. And so I found that just such an ironic moment. And then that in turn makes me think about Gen Xers and irony and sarcasm. And I always joke that sarcasm is my love language and that irony is I'm an Irish American person. And of course, I grew up in a house where everything was ironic and we were all doomed, but it was funny. And so... That is very Gen X in some ways, but I think in a larger sense, you're right. We were a sandwich generation. So between boomers and millennials and everyone, I, my joke is so, is one of my many running jokes on social media is Gen X doesn't exist. So how can anybody talk about us? Because nobody knows we're here. And I think that's where that distrust in institutions came from. So not only was it things like, I remember being a child and hearing Reagan talking about having his finger on the button and feeling like there was nothing we could do to being a young adult in college and us going to war for oil in the Middle East and protesting and feeling like no one cared. And Barbara Lee, who's my representative uh, in Congress from here in the Bay Area, being the only person who stood up and Rep, you know, representing us as her constituents stood up against that war and got death threats for it. And I, ju- I just felt like it was just such a moment of that represents Gen X seen as like nobody cares. And now my students wear Nirvana shirts and dress exactly like I did in college. I love it. They wear Doc Martens and finals. And I'm like, what is it just like 1990 all over again? But it's funny because um, you're right, their distrust of institutions is just so much deeper than ours was because they're watching the mistakes that past generations made impacting them. And and they just feel the thing I feel is that they're fighting for their lives. And the metaphor I use in the book is that boomers pulled up the ladder behind them and that Gen Xers were jumping to grab that ladder and then the millennials and Gen Z are just standing on the ground trying to figure out what to do. And so I think that being that generation that is in between and small and there's not that many of us and we're not culturally that powerful and there's no there's never been a Gen X president and there probably never will be. Yeah, it's just funny. But I get criticized for it. Sometimes somebody wrote about one of my previous books on Goodreads that Gen Xers are just, they just want to be edgy and they think it's edgy to drop the F-bomb in their writing and and they're just trying to be cool by doing that. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I don't feel edgy. I feel very invisible. But yeah, I think that's part of where that comes from is that being part of that generation that tried to change the world and nobody cares. Well, this 
brings out another parallel that I want to think about in terms of your book, The Defiant Middle. So when I was growing up, one of the real touchstones for me was punk rock. And those who were older than me would listen to the music and say, this is all nihilism, this is just noise and anger. And what I heard instead and what really spoke to me in punk rock was the idea of this is the voice of the voiceless, these are the people that you have pushed to the side, but now we have guitars. And now we have the ability to uh, kind of speak a message, and we're saying back to you the things that we've heard you say to us, but now you're calling it ugly. And what strikes me about that is that I see a similar dynamic happening in many of the women that you have written about in your book, The Defiant Middle, that they oftentimes reflect back an uncomfortable reality to the patriarchy or the power structures around them. And that's when the power structure decides to to really kind of pounce. And as I draw that parallel, that was something that really resonated for me. I don't know what your musical tastes were growing up, but I'd love to kind of hear as I'm making that kind of connection does that sound right to you? Would you say it in a different way? And as I make that connection, can you look at Joan of Arc or Dorothy Day and say, yeah, they were punks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I got to give a shout out to my friend, Michael Iafraid, who sadly passed away this year. Michael and I met on the internet because we were the two the two Catholics who knew the words to every Fugazi song. And if your readers are scratching their heads right now and not knowing Fugazi was a very Gen X band that were very interested in social justice and their lead singer came out of Washington, D.C. at a time when it was the Reagan era. And they their ethic was all their shows would always cost $5. Their CDs would never cost more than $5. You were not allowed to slam the ass at their shows because you might hurt somebody. And they wrote a song about abortion from the point of view of a woman when that was very taboo, right? So Fugazi was my version of The Clash. If I had been born in the 70s, I or sorry, I was born in the 70s. If I had come of age in the 70s, I would have fallen for The Clash because they also represented punk as social justice but I came of age for Fergazi, and then I got involved in this place in Berkeley called 924 Gilman Street, which is a collectively run community space for punk bands. And so that's where I was indoctrinated into politics, other than the fact that I grew up in Oakland and saw things like the Black Panther Party running free breakfast lines. So my politics were somewhere between those two things, but I'm also very religious by temperament. And so the Catholic thing came in there. So absolutely, I would say Dorothy Day, you know, what I love about her is not just what she represents as a woman who was a socialist anarchist journalist who started a lay run organization that feeds and houses people, volunteers that live in collective houses that take care of people for free, but that her Wikipedia page is listed under Christian anarchy. And I think that's so fascinating. I find myself as I get older to becoming more anarchistic and was kind of ranting the other day to the person that I live with about how I think property is theft and how gentrification is destroying the soul of the city where I live and 
I think that anarchist spirit of giving people more of their, giving people more control over their own destiny is something that was very important to me as a Gen X kid. Yeah, I too grew up punk. And so my second book is called Slanted and Enchanted, which is all about the history of indie and DIY and zines and and crafting and cassettes and all that fun stuff that um, is still around to this day. But I really love thinking about that from a religious lens, too. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Kaya Oaks. She's a journalist and the author of several books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. What strikes me about what you just said about kind of radical democracy and getting rid of the kind of institutions of power, how much that resonates with the Catholic idea of subsidiarity or making the results of choices land as close as possible to the people making those choices and vice versa. And so as your politics have been shaped by punk, I want to now ask the flip side of that question, how have your politics been shaped by your re-engagement with Catholicism? That really began here in the Bay Area because I had a a good Catholic education. You know, I went to Catholic elementary school. I went to Catholic high school. I went to Catholic college. But I didn't find out who Dorothy Day was until I was almost 40. And I saw some Catholic workers running a food line in People's Park, which is near my work, of an infamous, infamous location. And I just started doing my research and it was like my eyes just opened up. And I also met Jesuits and began to educate myself on Ignatian spirituality, which is very much about sort of like looking at how does God meet you in your ordinary life in kind of quotidian ways, but also about service to the marginalized. And so between those things... I think my religious politics began to form from the bottom up. In other words, I wasn't interested in what the Pope thought. I was interested in those Catholic workers in people's part and how they were living out their religious values on the streets. I'm more interested in what the Pope thinks now (laughs) because I'm more interested in this particular Pope and what he represents. But I'm still much more interested in how Catholic politics happen at the at the granular level, at the local level. So, for example, I don't go to the Church of the Street because they have no public face of service. Like they don't have a food line or a bread line or you can't, they don't go coat drives. They don't do anything. They're just this little sealed off bubble. And so I drive across town and go to the Black Catholic Church where they have a display of crosses outside from all the people in Oakland who've died from gun violence every year. And they really live out their their politics in a very public way. So, yeah, that's I think my Catholic politics are more concerned with the lives of the people in my community and less about what Rome thinks most of the time. Earlier in the conversation, we talked about the structure of your book, The Defiant Middle, and you gave us the illustration of sitting on the exercise bike and having this flash and and 
on your note program on your phone, taking down, these are the themes that I want to be kind of looking at. You described a very organic process. And so I'm not sure if the question that I'm about to ask is going to resonate, but we'll try. My question is, what surprised you? in the course of writing this book, you kind of had an idea of a certain direction that a chapter was going to go and you discovered some idea, some theme or some character, some person from history that kind of pushed you in a new direction. I'd love to hear about the surprises that you had along the way. I was delighted to meet some of the people in this book for the first time, like the public universal friend who was a non-binary Quaker prophet who lived in a time when those words didn't make sense going together. And I was delighted to reacquaint myself with people like Joan of Arc and understand her from not as a little kid who has an art project for Catholic school where you had to draw a picture of your favorite saint, but as a 50-year-old woman who's had many life experiences and understands the struggle that girls go through to define their own identities. But I also knew throughout the book that I was going to, and this isn't a spoiler, I was going to, I knew because I was writing it during the pandemic and because of things that were going on in my own life that I was going to end with the idea of solitude. And I got really engaged in reading and writing about women who were solitaries and the the difference between a single person who's somebody who is not partnered and a person who is a solitary somebody who chooses solitude and how that is in some ways the most radical choice that a woman can make because we're expected to be nurturers and caretakers and so throughout the book I knew that I was going to end with this sort of and again this is not a spoiler (laughs) I was going to end not with my own story, but with this sort of mythical woman who's going striking out on her own and and how she embodies all the women in the book, all the women in my life, all the women that I hope to meet in, in the future who have made that choice as well. Well, what strikes me about that is, just as we've been saying throughout the conversation, women are not bound by their adherence to or departure from certain roles or certain behaviors or even certain parts of their body, but rather it's this feelingness of being a woman that is the unifying factor that brings all these things together. So a woman that chooses not to be nurturing is still a woman. And I, that rang out very clearly for me in the book, a woman who chooses to be alone rather than partnered is still a woman. And this is in many ways, as our culture is turning 180 degrees on certain kind of established benchmarks for the rights of women and things like that, this is almost a rallying cry. This is intended not just to be a meditation, but a revolution in some ways. Now, am I overstating the case, or is that kind of your hope for the book, that readers will come away saying, yeah, I may be in struggle, I may be in a gray space, I may be in a liminal space, but I know who I am. Yes. (laughs) And I want to add to that. I really want to invite men to this conversation and I want men to read this book. And I was very disappointed that I did an event last week. Only one man came. And I think that there's the sense that if you go to a feminist event or pick up a feminist book and you are a man, that you won't understand it or that you'll 
you know, have to grapple with things that you don't want to think about. But that's exactly the point. I think that masculinity and concepts of masculinity are just as dangerous to men as concepts of what it femininity are to women. And so we have to be understanding what each other are going through. The fact that I live with a person who is a cis man and I see how culture and ideas of masculinity impact him emotionally, physically, and how difficult it is to be a man. I also understand that men have a lot of privilege to unpack. And the only way they're going to be able to do that is to help women to achieve liberation. And so, you know, people of color will always tell you, like, you have to unpack your own white privilege in order to understand how it works. And men have to unpack their male privilege in order to understand how patriarchy contributes to homophobia and racism and all that kind of stuff. But I don't want to push men away because I really do value their contribution to this discussion, but they've got to let us start the conversation for once. Well, Kaya Oaks, I am a person who identifies as a man, and I am so glad that I read your book and so glad to have had this conversation with you. Your book, The Defiant Middle, I think was exactly what I needed at this particular moment. It gave me some new people to think about. You mentioned the public universal friend and some other folks like that. But more than this, it gave me a a way of reorienting my approach to these kinds of questions. And I'm very grateful that you took the time to write the book. I'm especially grateful you took the time to speak about it with us today. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking today with Kaya Oaks. She is a journalist and author of several books, including The Nuns Are All Right and Radical Reinvention. She teaches writing at the University of California, Berkeley, is a contributing writer for America Magazine. She speaks on topics related to religion, writing, and feminism from coast to coast and abroad. Today, we've been speaking about her recent book, The Defiant Middle, How Women Claim Life's In-Betweens to Remake the World. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.